Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 147 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Rita Sorenden joining us, and Rita is the CEO and president of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, and her story is a great one. Their team's scaling quickly, and they're growing a lot, all with a great mission to help kids who are struggling to find families, and I definitely think you guys are going to enjoy this episode, and as always, we hope you'll learn a lot. Before we get to that, though, we want to take a quick moment to thank some of our sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our last sponsor is Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook, and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Uh, Today on the show, we've got Rita Sorenden joining us, and Rita is the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, a national nonprofit public charity dedicated exclusively to finding permanent homes and loving families for the nearly 155,000 children waiting in North America's foster care systems. Uh, created by Wendy's co-founder, sorry, Wendy's founder, Dave Thomas, who was adopted, 
The foundation implements evidence-based, results-driven national service programs, foster care adoption awareness campaigns, and innovative grant making. We're really excited to have Rita on the show today to talk about everything their team is doing to help kids find homes. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Rita. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. And we're really excited to have you here. And I guess typically kind of the, one of the first places we like to start off is maybe kick it back a little bit, talk a little bit about early life and kind of what led you to the foundation. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, you know, I've been in this world of child welfare and child abuse and neglect for, I guess, over 30 years now. But interestingly, I was working on a master's in landscape architecture, and my oldest daughter was an infant at the time, and there was this wretched abuse case here in Columbus, Ohio. We had just moved back to Columbus. And I was I guess just super sensitive to the notion that um, young children might be harmed by those very adults who are charged with their care. So I, I essentially dropped everything and started volunteering with what was then the League Against Child Abuse, the Ohio chapter of the National Committee to Prevent Child Abuse. And that turned into an evolution of learning all that I could about vulnerable children and families, what drives people to abuse their children, how do we keep it from happening. And from that, I moved into paid positions at that organization and then moved from that organization to began to really look at how do I elevate this. What I had was a natural sense of advocacy for children. I was one of those kids that came out kicking and screaming, it's not fair, when it had to do with children. And people would sort of metaphorically pat you on the head and say, oh, you'll, you'll know better when you're an adult. You, I, I think the same way now as I did when I was 10, that we have to do better by children. So um, after the League Against Child Abuse moved into uh, becoming the director of the local court-appointed special advocate program, which provides community volunteers to advocate on behalf of children who've been abused or neglected and provides best interest advocacy for them in mm -hmm. court. And while I was there, spent a good 10 years then learning even more about this complex system of child welfare and the interweaving of juvenile justice and health care and, and um, child welfare and what we do to our kids when they're in the system and tend to be forgotten by communities then had the opportunity after nearly a decade there to move to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And for me, it has become a bit of a full circle career, starting out in prevention, moving into intervention, how do we help these children when they're involved in court proceedings, and now through the foundation, really looking at we've failed them in two instances. We haven't kept them from coming into care. We have, we've moved them through the court system into this permanent status of now legal orphan, they are now legal orphans. They've been freed for adoption because the abuse has been so great that the court has legally and permanently terminated parental rights of that child. And so now what do we do with the number of children who are simply waiting for families and homes? So it, it's been a great evolution, but one that was just fueled by a personal passion for child advocacy. And throughout that, I mean, what do you think it was in particular that kind of continued to draw you closer and closer to such... Um, what I'm assuming was that most of the time heart-wrenching thing to, to be around and continue to be associated with. Well, what, what I kept hearing and what I kept seeing is that children were falling through the cracks of the very system that we created to save them, to move them forward, to assure better outcomes than they were having in their own family of origin. And I heard someone say recently, children don't fall through our cracks, they fall through our fingers. And it, 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 it just highlighted for me that if we can't work on behalf of 
of some of the most vulnerable children in our community, then our communities simply can't be strong. And someone needed to get in there, and I'm certainly not the only one, but we needed to get in there and begin to look at how do we do this different for children. We know today in this country that the, in, in the United States alone, there are 123,000 children who are in that status. They are no longer part of a, a legal family. Their parental rights have been terminated. So the parents that were their, their birth family are no longer involved in their right, in their family, in, in their life, and they're legally no longer involved. So although looking at you know international adoption or infant adoption are great, we celebrate however families are formed, but we kept forgetting about these children right here in our own backyard who were freed for adoption, birth zero to 18. And the other number that continued to drive me as I learned more and more about it is that year over year over year, 20,000 of these children leave the system at age 18 without the family we promised them. And what we know is not because they're bad kids, but because they don't have a safety net of a family, those are the children that are much more likely to have negative outcomes, homelessness, unemployment, um, early parenting, substance abuse, movement back into systems simply because they don't have families surrounding them, picking them up when they stumble, and showing them a positive path forward. So I think it, it's, it, it's those you know points in time where you learn that 20,000 children year over year over year over a five-year period, 100,000 youth don't have a family to celebrate graduation, to, to honor a, a marriage, to, to become grandparents. And yet, in this country, we think it's okay. You know, they'll be fine. There's no reason that they should be fine, and, and, and we shouldn't legally sanction that effort. And then when they do hit the age of 18, they're past, past that youth stage, and maybe they, they grew up without a family, and then, you know, things like holidays come around, things yeah. like that. Are there initiatives out there, whether your team's associated with them or not, that are helping them um, still continue to support them in that environment? Sure, there are lots of initi initiatives, and, and in fact, there is some federal funding that's provided to help children who do age out of care. But the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption's position is, yes, let's make sure that those children who do age out have every support possible from um, education assistance to mentoring to um, you know families that may step in and help them through that process. But if we can get them a family, and we know we can, we have evidence-based practices that work on their behalf, Let's mitigate that and let's not let them age out of care if at all possible. And then, you know, you talked about, you, you went through it fairly quickly, your progression of your career with the Dave Thomas Foundation. If you look back on that and you look at a more granular level, you know, what are some of the, the highs and lows that you've gone through throughout that career that have set you up for where you are today? Yeah, it's a great question. When I started at the, the foundation in 2001, it was a relatively new organization. Dave Thomas founded it in 1992 as a national nonprofit public charity. I think we're mistaken sometimes because we have such great philanthropic partners in the Wendy's company. We're mistaken for a corporate foundation or someone thinks of us as a family foundation because of the name associated or even here in Central Ohio, a community foundation. We're not that. We're a national nonprofit public charity. and so. Um, really looking at how do we elevate our fundraising, how do we elevate our tactics to use the national platform we were given, to use this incredible brand association with the Wendy's company that, that they, they allow us to use freely. How do we elevate that on behalf of the children who are waiting to be adopted? So when I walked in the door, we were relatively small. It was a staff of about five. And we were really focused on just awareness activities. How do we elevate this conversation with the public? How do we alert the public? public to the fact that 123,000 children are waiting to be adopted. And so that when they're thinking about ad adoption, 
concurrently they may be thinking again about international adoption or infant adoption. We just want people to concurrently think, oh, there's another option. There's foster care adoption as well. And so we had to really look at some new tactics of moving that message forward. But we couldn't do that if we didn't understand what the public was thinking. And so we implemented, um, you know, we, we could do it intuitively, but that wasn't good enough for us. So we implemented a regular um, a survey through Nielsen Harris Interactive that takes a snapshot of what are Americans and Canadians' attitudes toward children in foster care, toward foster care adoption, toward the system, because there are some barriers and myths and misperceptions that the public holds, and we found those out. For example, it still kind of socks me in the stomach when we know through each one of those surveys that um, a majority of Americans believe children are in care because they've done something wrong because they're juvenile delinquents. That's an American attitude toward those children. And nothing could be farther from the truth. These are kids who have been abused or neglected or abandoned and placed into substitute care and they're suffering incredible trauma, grief, and loss. And so how do we turn that around? And, and that became a high point of really looking at appropriate messaging based on what we knew about attitudes, appropriate visuals, um, appropriate storytelling, all those things that could elevate this conversation in a positive way. And then taking that to a policy level. Are there federal and state laws and policies that are barriers to getting these children adopted. So I think those first steps of jumping in the foundation. But then what we found is there were no evidence-based programs that the very social workers who are charged with getting these children adopted could utilize in order to get them adopted. One thing that, that just really changed our path at the foundation, I had been there maybe a year, and we got a phone call. And at that point, Wendy's was doing this incredible job in the restaurants of, of putting posters up and highlighting during November National Adoption Month that children were waiting. But they were doing visuals, uh, faces of children waiting to be adopted in restaurants. And I got a call from a young woman who was crying on the phone and said, you've got to take that poster down. She was calling from somewhere in Pennsylvania. My face is on a poster, and my friends don't know I'm in foster care. And it made us rethink what the country was doing to get these children adopted. At that point, the country and the foundation was doing it as well. We were doing this sort of general call for parents, step in, children are waiting, think about foster care adoption. But there were public displays of children, websites, Wednesday's child programs, catalogs, visuals of, of children waiting to be adopted. And we were hoping that charismatically a family would look through a catalog, see a show on, on, on a, a newscaster you know, highlighting a child waiting to be adopted, and charismatically would say, well, that's my child. I want to adopt that child. For some children, that works. But for our target population of children, children age 9 and older, children in sibling groups, children with special needs, children who've been in care for so long, they've given up hope on being adopted, public displays don't work. And in fact, they may do more harm because if we don't then get that child adopted, what's the message? What's that silent, stealth message to that child is, you know, everybody's right. You're too old. You're too damaged. You're not something. You're not good enough to be adopted. And so we began this campaign of looking at how do we create a different program for these children and how do we begin to drive that message that unadoptable is an unacceptable message that every child deserves a family. And as, as they go through that process, like there almost seems like a lot of it's rooted back in a stigma that foster care and the foster environment is such a negative, negative place to be in. And it almost seems like maybe that's because a lot of people don't have a lot of insight into that. So not only um, putting a spotlight into 
you know, the different options for adoption, but is, is there anybody putting a spotlight into what that environment looks like and what they're going through and from even a mental health standpoint to, to keep them stable in such turmoil and tough times of their life? Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and we've come a long way in the past decade or so <clears throat> really talking about and supporting families, one, who do step forward and making sure they have all the information they need. First about the child's journey through care. What has this child experienced? It used to be those records were very tight and closed, but parents that step forward to adopt deserve every bit of information. What has this child experienced? What are their challenges if they have them? Um, how do I connect to resources, both financial and emotional, to support this child? Because really, adoption is just a comma in the sentence. It's not the period. Um, the child is still dealing with the trauma and loss they've experienced in their life, and that's going to come out in typically in behaviors or in, in, in some kind of emotion as that child gets more and more comfortable in an adoptive family. So both the foundation and other organizations across the nation are really looking at how do we better serve families who step forward to adopt with post-adoption services and qualified evidence-based services. Um, but also, how do we really open the doors to what the child welfare system looks like? And we've created a, a, a banner, a piece of, of literature, a beginner's guide to adoption that walks people through those steps. What does it look like? How do you get involved? What is the training? What are the requirements? So that there's some basic information. And the internet is just rife with information now. If you just tap in foster care adoption, you know, how to get to an appropriate agency, how to go through these steps. It's still fraught with frustration. It's a bureaucratic system, and, and in very large urban cities, sometimes, of course, there aren't enough staff, and there's not a quick enough response time, and people tend to self-select out. But I think for those who really are committed to this process, we owe them a quick response. Um, we owe them appropriate information. We owe them transparency and honesty about the system and about the children. And you mentioned, right, like it's tough on families when they don't have the resources they need. And yeah. Are there any other resource programs or things like that that you, you'd want to talk about or any initiatives you have going on currently to, to help families outside of, um, like you mentioned, making more, I guess, creating opportunities for them, but also what about like visibility and getting like awareness out of these programs? Like what, what are some of the things that you guys have challenges on there in terms yeah. of awareness for the families. Yeah, and, and they are challenges, and because every state is different, and every, you know, in a, in a county-based state like Ohio, every county functions differently, and every agency functions differently. So this is a complex system, again, of, of not just the child welfare system, but health care and education, all of those things um, that, that a family needs to step into. Um, but, but there are supports for families, so that the majority of children by federal law come under this classification of special needs. And it doesn't just mean mental or physical special needs by virtue of their age, if they're older, or, or their race or cultural heritage. Those that are defined by the federal government as more difficult to adopt qualify for subsidies once they're adopted. So families can claim subsidies. So you adopt a 15-year-old, and, and you know you can get monthly income to help support that child through age 18. There are also many states offer um, educational vouchers for children to attend school. Again, you adopt an older youth, and you haven't saved for 18 years for college. But there are educational supports in most states to help those children who are adopted out of foster care at an older age to um, get to college if a financial barrier is there for the parents or for the youth. Um, there's also something in the 
Foundation, this is one of Dave Thomas's first campaigns, the Adoption Friendly Workplace Campaign. We encourage all employers, large or small, public or private, nonprofit or for-profit, to put in their human resource benefits, adoption benefits, if they provide benefits to families that are formed through birth. Now we understand there's a difference. There's a medical difference between birth and, and, and the cost there, but paid leave, um, financial support for the adoption is something that we find when employers put them in their package, it's at a very low cost, but it, it creates a, an incredible sense of equity among employees. So, uh, you know, encouraging uh, employers to put adoption benefits in the workplace so that employees can say, hey, I'm, 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 now I'm going to adopt. What, what can I get? Can I get some at least some paid leave so I've got some time to bond with this child as well? So those kinds of, of absolutely supports exist across the country for families. For those out there listening unfamiliar with the organization, you know, what does the structure look like today and how many people are employed at the foundation? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, oh, and just to add to that, right, yeah. you mentioned earlier you started with around five. So yeah. like, where have those changes come over time is something I'd be interested in. Yeah, and fairly significant in the past couple of years because we've engaged in a new process that's resulted in some significant growth. So up from, you know, from about 2002 until 2015-16, we had anywhere between 10 and 15 employees that were chugging along, really doing, putting in place great awareness campaigns, growing um, our child-focused recruitment, our Wendy's Wonderful Kids program. And today, though, we've got 41 employees and we've got a plan for growth over the next few years that will take us to probably about 75 employees in the next three to five years. And that's the result of this Wendy's Wonderful Kids program that we created in 2004 in response to the fact that there weren't good practices out there that focused on children as individuals rather than this sort of casting the broad net, putting their faces out publicly and seeing what happens. We created this program and said, here's what we'll do as a grant-making organization. We'll give grants to organizations to hire full-time adoption professionals that will carry a small caselet of children and focus on those individual children, the longest waiting children, the children most at risk of aging out of care, and implement this model we, we created to give them the time that they need to create a relationship with the child, to do a deep dive into the child's history and case file, knowing that what they'll find is we don't need strangers necessarily coming forward. We certainly need everyone to come forward. But for many of these children who have been in care for four or five or six years, there are former foster parents, there are teachers, there are extended family members who are safe and willing. Um, there are lots of adults in these children's lives who, if they knew they were available for adoption, might step forward and adopt. And so we put this child-focused recruitment model in place. We asked our Wendy's partners if they'd increase their fundraising for us so that we could begin to expand this program, and they did just that. So that's been the impetus for growth. But in 2016, this program, um, we also put behind it, I guess, um, uh, a, a rigorous randomized control trial evaluation so that we would know at an evidence-based level, is this really working better than business as usual? And at that point, we had the program as a footprint in all 50 states and throughout Canada so we could put in place a rigorous evaluation. And after a five-year evaluation, what we found is Wendy's Wonderful Kids is up to three times or 300% more effective than any business as usual at getting this target population of children, those most at risk of aging out of care, adopted. So that put us on a, a path of how do we put it in place? We know this works, and not unlike not to pathologize foster care, 
but not unlike when you know a medicine works, you kind of drop everything and say, let's get it to the people who need it most. So we began to look at how do we embed and scale this as best practice in states. We got the attention of another major foundation who was creating a new strategy of pulling together some of the wealthiest philanthropists in this nation um, to take proven programs to scale. And they, they put us through about a year of uh, rigorous due diligence. They helped us create a 12-year business plan. And they accepted that. And on January 1st of 2017, we turned the lights on of a significant scaling process with the infusion of some fairly significant philanthropy that we can offer to states now and say, we've got a proven model. We have some upfront philanthropy to help you get this model embedded. But what we know is after about three to five years of getting these children out of expensive foster care and into adoptive homes, that we save states significant dollars. We save states significant long-term dollars because we avoid those negative consequences of homelessness and early parenting and unemployment. And so we can put in place this public-private partnership to get this program to scale across the nation. We're now effectively scaled in eight states and one province in Canada. And our 12-year plan says we will have this program scaled in all 50 states by 2028. So the philanthropy also allowed us to scale our staff so that we're not stumbling over some significant growth nationally as well. Um, and that's been that significant growth just over the last 18 months, really doubled our staff, and we'll do that again over the next three to five years. And in terms of the services being offered currently versus what the 12-year plan looks like, um, do you plan on extending that reach along with just the geographical presence and where you guys are located, or what would that look like? So extending the, the reach of all of the tactics of the foundation, yeah, and, and will there be additional services that you guys are going to uh, scope out on? Or? Yeah, absolutely, because along with this, we have to continue to address what are some of the natural barriers to getting these children adopted. And the reality is, even with a proven program, the courts sometimes become barriers because they don't terminate parental rights or they don't believe that a child at 16 needs to be adopted. They'll be fine when they age out or social workers who don't want to let go of or don't believe in a new way of doing business. And so we're also really enhancing our training program, our collateral training programs for the legal um, uh, profession, for guardians ad litem and judges and children's attorneys, so that they understand what's behind the value of permanency in a child's life, not just saying it's okay to let them age out and let's give them some services to age out. Um, we're putting in place an extended training program for caseworkers so they understand we're not coming in and saying you're doing business wrong. We just want to work in partnership to get these children adopted. We know that's what you want too. So really looking at training to eliminate barriers, but also increasing our um, uh, awareness presence because we do still need people that jump in and understand that right here in Columbus, this is an issue. Across the state of Ohio, this is an issue. That it's not just a government issue, that it's a community issue. So elevating and continually looking at what are our messages, what are our success stories, what is it that we want the public to do in order to help this cause. So what strikes me, you know, I've heard the words data-driven, rigorous, detail-oriented, like yeah. a lot of you probably could tell, and I'm sure it seeps in your culture that a lot of the things process-driven, right? Yeah. But it takes passionate people yeah. to make those processes happen the way Absolutely. you want them to. As you scale, right, you're growing a lot. Uh, one of the challenges we always think about, even on a business side, like a SaaS business, is, hey, how do we maintain that culture yeah. to grow? Yeah. So how do you guys find the right people? What, what are you doing to make sure that the people you bring into your team have the same passion as someone like you when it comes to these issues that, are, that they're going to follow the 
processes and make sure that they're pulling in the data they need to make the right decisions. Absolutely, and that's a great question because it's not only with staff, but we're supporting 437 of these adoption professionals across the United States and Canada. So they're not our employees, but they carry that Wendy's Wonderful Kids brand. They carry the Dave Thomas brand. So it's a culture internal and external as well. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it's such a great question because part of that is building this plane while we fly it um, and really looking at change management internally. And, and it's, it starts with the recruitment phase, you know, and, and really drilling down to someone's motivation. And, and are you willing to, to make this your personal passion? Um, but it extends at that, you know, first point of orientation and onboarding and making sure folks understand who we are, who was our founder, that our mission and vision have not changed over 27 years, that we're a one-trick pony. We are we work to dramatically increase the adoptions of children out of North America's foster care system and as a core value we believe that every child deserves a safe loving and permanent home and that no child is unadoptable so it starts with those sort of core values and it gets infused through weekly meetings and and leadership meetings and 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 this notion that leadership exists at everyone's desk I've got an incredible leadership team that we've built but that doesn't mean that everyone on their team isn't a leader at their desk and isn't committed to that same rigorous sense of making sure that a child has a family and a home and then celebrating this can be kind of grueling business at times we do still have those stories of you know children on caseloads just in the past quarter we've had a suicide of a, of a youth on a caseload we've had a runaway of a youth on a caseload and we've had um, a, a, a jailing a incarceration of one of our youth on a caseload but 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 we have to understand that you know stuff happens and we do our best to make sure that um, we're driving towards success and we're working even with those kids who are the most difficult we're making sure they still have every opportunity to succeed um, but culture is a, is a big deal for us uh, and how we honor both the legacy of Dave Thomas this partnership incredible partnership that we have with the Wendy's company but for the most part the brand of childhood honoring and respecting what childhood means in terms of the way that the foundation interacts um, with the ecosystem when it goes into new regions are you reaching out with all the different stakeholders and building relationships when you first enter, or are they reaching out to you, and is it kind of a two-way street? It can be a two-way street. Now that we're in this aggressive forward movement, it tends to be us reaching out to them. But the value of this program, you know, Wendy's Wonderful Kids is sort of a 14-year overnight success. So it, we grew it gradually from 2004 with seven pilot sites and really testing it, going through the evaluation, gradual growth. And through that time, you know, this is true in life and business it's all about relationships, right? And success is all about relationships, whether it's in a, a personal experience or a business experience. And so really pulling on the depth of those relationships that we've built over the past decade and reaching out from governor's offices to child welfare offices to legislators to the agencies we've been working with over the years, to the general public, to our business community, wherever we've built those relationships and know that we can also have um, additional advocate voices on behalf of this program on, and on behalf of the children. This is not something we can or choose to do alone. This is about building those coalitions and relationships. And certainly at an advocacy level, building and working among coalitions when we need to drive legislation that needs to be different, when we need to drive um, community change we work in coalitions a lot what I'm hearing is that there's a lot of I mean there's just a lot 
in the air, right? You got a lot of places you're juggling a lot of different yeah. you know, political, legislative, you know, pushing marketing and getting the right people involved. Like for you personally, where are your hands in the most often? Like what are you doing during the day that's that's driving all this? And then <laughs> what are you delegating? What are the pieces that you're yeah. saying, hey, this is what I need you to do. Here's how I want you to do it, but then kind of push it off. Yeah, and my role has changed significantly as well. When you're a staff of four, your fingers are in everything. When you're a staff of 15, pretty much your eyes and fingers are in everything. When you're a staff of 40 to 50, then it's delegation time. And my role has been changing a lot in that sense. But if you think about just today, I was thinking about this on the way over. I started with, we had about 30 of our grantees in town for two days of training. Um, we make sure that everybody goes through the same consistent training because fidelity to this model is critical. So I, I, whenever I'm in town and if I can, I open it up with just what you talked about earlier. How do we maintain that culture when I can start training with here's who we are, here's what we do, and here's what we believe. So I started out with that this morning over at the Embassy Suites at the airport. Um, um, after that, I had a couple of phone calls with new board members. We're also looking at what does our board of trustees look like, and we've got five new board members starting in the next um, uh, near term, and so making sure that they're um, moving into an orientation phase and understanding who we are and what we do. Um, we had a call with the Ministry of Canada today as we're renegotiating a contract with Ontario um, um, for scaling in Ontario. Um, and then I uh, had individual meetings with some of the members of my leadership team and then carved out about 15 minutes of hand thank yous because this is all about, again, that personal touch whenever possible. So my role is both at that, um, you know, when we're talking to governors, when we're talking to legislators, although we've got a, gov a great government relations person who drives those conversations, there are times that I need to be at the table and there are times when I need them to, to do all of that work. Part of our commitment to this new scaling effort is we are significantly increasing our fundraising as well. So about a 10% increase year over year, which is a significant amount for a nonprofit organization. So my job now has turned much more into um, really looking at where do we define those um, those individuals and those, those companies, those groups that can um, partner with us and invest in us above and beyond the investments that have been made. So just a, a, a lot of, of um, really making sure that our business plan is solid, that it's moving forward, that the accountability for employees is there, but that that support and encouragement is there at every turn for our employees, for our 437 recruiters, for our board members. Um, and then I, you know, I started out hating public speaking 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I hated it. I do a whole lot of keynotes now and a, a lot of interviews and a lot of public speaking. So as the spokesperson for the organization, finding those appropriate opportunities that can advance this mission and advance this cause as well. And at a personal level, you know, what do you look forward to over the next three to five years? Is there anything that's um, on your mind that we haven't already covered that's in the foundation's goals as well? Yeah, certainly long-term sustainability. You know, we're, we're in a, a wonderful growth phase, but we have to make sure that 20 years from now, because I don't think this cause is going to be solved in the next decade, um, we would hope, but I don't think it is. So making sure the foundation is, is strong, both in terms of internal structure and, and financial sustainability. Um, also looking at uh, people, when I, I do last round of interviews when we bring new staff on, because again, that's another point of where we touch that culture piece. And I've had 
had a number of folks ask this great question that puzzled me at first. And they say, hey, this 12-year plan is great, but what's next after that? And I think, well, let us get through the first few years. But they're right. You know, what's next? And it's not about what happens in 12 years. It's how do we put in place some evidence-based practices about that post-adoption support, about how we support families, about how we create policies that make sure that when these children are adopted, the families are safe and sound for decades to come as well. So um, I'm really looking at those, uh, you know, the sustainability of this organization and its culture and the, and, and the next um, tactics that we need to put in place to assure families are safe and sound. And then how can our listeners help support the cause? That's great. You know, just learning about this and recognizing that the child welfare system isn't something that's over there, that it is a part of our community, and these children are a part of our community and deserve our every attention and support. So whether it's contacting Franklin County Children's Services and becoming a mentor or a volunteer or signing up at a Christmas, at Christmas program, you know, when, when the kids um, just need this extra boost of support or Thanksgiving. Um, and to help the foundation directly, certainly, you know, if, if folks are interested in enough in us to find out more about adoption, our beginner's guide to adoption is on our website, davethomasfoundation.org. You can download it or get as many hard, hard copies as you'd like. Um, and if, if folks are so driven to, that they want to help us financially, they can donate online, they can send a check to our address, um, they can really look at how to include us in their long-term financial planning if that's something that they're interested in so that there is this legacy that goes beyond who we are today and, and helping children of the future as well. And Conquerors, if you guys do want to donate or support the cause at all, there will be a link down in the show notes right to that webpage. Just go down there, click it. It'll take you where you need to go. But the last question of the show is centered on the theme on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. Yeah. And if, without telling you too much about why Josh and I selected that, uh, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, and how does it apply to your life and career? So, you know, I, I think living uncomfortably means disrupting what what we take for granted as working, but really digging under it and making sure that it's working. Um, uh, you know, we've worked to disrupt in a good way the child welfare system on behalf of these children. And it's not a comfortable place to be. There are a lot of folks that are comfortable with business as usual. It's what they know. It's what they want to do every day. Um, and challenging people on behalf of children to say, this isn't enough. It's not enough to let a child linger in care for five years without a family. It's not enough to let a child age out of care. It's not enough to let a child be abused or neglected or abandoned or trafficked. So getting into those messy conversations, because these are conversations about family violence. These are conversations about substance abuse. These are conversations that, that you know, impact way more of us than sometimes we want to admit. It exists in our own families, in our own communities. So I think just disrupting that sense of business as usual and making sure business as usual is okay. And if it's okay, great, then let's support it 100%. But chances are, at least in these complex juvenile justice, child welfare, health and education systems, business as usual probably isn't enough for the children we serve. And for me, I already talked about it, you know, I am not an, I, I, it, it is not natural for me to stand up in front of 500 people and speak, but it's what I now love to do because I'm driven by that passion for children. Rita, that's a great answer and a really great interview. We really appreciate you taking the time oh, to tell your story you. and the story of the foundation. So uh, thanks a lot. No, again. I appreciate it. All Absolutely. Right. And Conquerors, thanks a lot for tuning in. Again, 
Don't forget to check out the show notes, a bunch of links down there that you guys can uh, take to find out more about Foundation. And, and that was Rita Sornan. She's the CEO and president of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode, learned a lot. Again, we'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like, share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our last sponsor is Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.